and Merry Christmas. Um, I want to start this evening with a simple question. I want to ask you, uh, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I living good enough? Allow me to state the question a bit differently. What does God think of the way that I'm living? Am I living good enough? What does God think of the way that I'm living? Obviously, there's not a single one of us who... Is there a problem? I believe you. Bethany, if you would turn down uh, channel three just a bit, if you don't mind. Obviously, there's not a single one of us who can answer this question, am I living good enough, with a confident yes. That is, if we are being honest. Uh, But the reason I ask this question is that hopefully in asking the question, something is revealed within our hearts. Uh, And that is fear. Many of us are living in constant fear. We're afraid of not measuring up to expectations. We are afraid of not being good enough. We're afraid of the opinions of others. We are afraid of being alone. We're afraid of whether or not we will ever be truly loved. Some of us are afraid simply of being found out that what is hidden will be revealed. We're afraid of what would happen if people really knew us. Some of us may be struggling with whether or not God loves us. Some of you may be saying within your hearts, I know the Bible says that God completely loves me. But does he? Every single one of us has an internal dialogue. And there are always competing voices in this dialogue. Some of them telling us true things. Some of these voices telling us lies. And at certain times, certain voices get louder. Other voices get quieter. Sometimes you have to fight to hear the positive voices. And for some, that is a constant uphill battle. We're plagued by what ifs. What if the money isn't there? What if the door doesn't open? What if he leaves me? What if these people knew the real me? What if I don't make it? What if my kids fill in the blank with a billion different things? And so we look back on the things in life that we've experienced, and our response is to put on the best mask that we can possibly fashion. We look forward to days to come and just hope and pray that we're moving in the right direction. The past is the place that holds our regrets, and the future is the home of our fears. Is there an answer to those fears? 
Is there an answer that speaks into the fray, breathing peace and assurance? Does God hear those anguished cries? Does God see the tear stains on our pillows? Does God sense and feel the downward gravitational pull of the darkness in our hearts? And does He speak from heaven with any word of response? The answer, of course, is yes. And that answer is the incarnation of Jesus. Breaking into the silence of the night, God sends hope in the form of a newborn. Now, most of you know how I feel about the Christmas season. Um, I am pretty much Mr. Grinch. Um, I was putting up Christmas lights on the roof this past week, uh, muttering under my breath the entire time, saying Christian curse words, and um, just having a grand old time. And Allison was like, if you're going to have a bad attitude about it, don't even do it, okay? And I said, babe, the bad attitude is part of the Christmas tradition, isn't it? She was like, uh, no, no, that's not true. Um, I love to pick apart Christmas carols and uh, talk about why they're inaccurate. I love to hate on all things Santa and reindeer and jingle bells. Um, I love to make fun of Hallmark movies. Um, And most of all, I love to avoid any type of retail location um, until next month sometime. But that doesn't mean that I don't love Christmas, as long as by Christmas we're referring to the reason for the season. See, the the birth of Jesus was like a spiritual earthquake. It was a seismic shift in human history. It was God's answer to every human fear. Perhaps you are one of those people that actually does like to watch Christmas movies. Few are more classic than Home Alone. Home Alone, of course, is the story of eight-year-old Kevin McAllister. And Kevin McAllister is kind of a brat. His family is taking a trip to Paris for Christmas. um, And as a punishment... Kevin is forced to sleep in the attic for being a brat um, the night before the family leaves. And uh, that actually sounds like a good idea to me now, uh, now that I have an eight-year-old son. Sometimes I think to myself, maybe I should make him sleep in the attic. Um, But in this movie, Kevin makes a rather selfish Christmas wish. Kevin wishes that he would no longer have a family because his family is pushing him around. His family is limiting him. His family is keeping him from doing the things that he wants to do, and they're always picking on him, and he wants to have his own life. That is his Christmas wish. Uh, And actually, come to think of it, I'm pretty sure I've heard my son say something similar. Or something like, I wish I was the dad so I could make my own rules. I wish I could have my own house. And I'm like, dude, you know that in order to do that, you have to work a job. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, why do you think I work all the time? Uh, So come to think of it, babe, maybe we should make him sleep in the attic at some point. But not before a family trip to Paris. Paris. 
because, of course, in the movie, when uh, Kevin McAllister wakes up in the attic, his family is gone. In the rush to get to the airport, they leave him. In fact, they get all the way to Paris before they even realize that he is not with them. So, if you have ever felt like a bad parent, you've never left your kid while you were halfway across the world. Probably, I'm guessing. If, if that has happened to you, let's swap stories afterwards. Uh, Kevin, of course, wakes up and he's excited to be alone. And so he sets about ruling his own kingdom, getting into mischief. He, he starts getting into his older brother's stuff that he's not supposed to touch. He starts drinking Coke and ordering pizza and doing his own thing, having a grand old time. Until the wet bandits show up, Harry and Marv. Harry and Marv have been hitting up all the other neighborhood houses, robbing them blind. And so now they've got their sights set on the McAllisters. And as any eight-year-old would be, Kevin is afraid. And for a while, we find him living in fear. Fear of what will happen if the wet bandits actually come in. Until there's a scene where Kevin is hiding under the bed. And he's hiding behind these uh, Christmas boxes. And he begins to engage in some self-talk. He begins to psych himself up. Kevin does exactly what our culture would tell you to do in the face of fear. Look in the mirror and begin speaking confidence into existence. Culture says... If you're feeling insecure, pull yourself up and be the voice of confidence. Tell yourself how great you are. Tell yourself why you're enough. Tell yourself why nothing is impossible for you. I am the master of my own destiny. I am strong. I am worthy. I am enough. Self-help. This is what Kevin does. He pushes aside these Christmas bags he's been hiding behind, and he says, this is ridiculous. Only a wimp would be hiding under the bed. And I can't be a wimp. I'm the man of the house. Another thing I could imagine my eight-year-old son saying. So he, he gets out from under the bed, and he runs outside, and he begins to shout into the empty neighborhood, hey, I'm not afraid anymore. I said, I'm not afraid anymore. Do you hear me? I'm not afraid anymore. He's, he's shouting this at the wet bandits who may be able to hear him from the darkness. But then, after he shouts this, he looks up and he sees the creepy old neighbor, Mr. Marley, carrying a shovel. And his eyes get wide and he yells, Ah! And he runs back in the house, screaming his head off. Ironically, Kevin finds out later in the movie that old man Marley isn't actually trying to kill him. Mr. Marley isn't out to get him. Mr. Marley is actually looking out for him. Actually, he is the one that's going to end up saving Kevin's life. You see, Kevin's fear was entirely misplaced. 
And all that self-talk got him nowhere. And in order for his fears to be truly conquered and defeated, he needed a rescuer more powerful than himself. And he came to meet that rescuer inside a church after hiding in a nativity scene. Today, we're going to look at God's answer to our fears. We're going to look at a rescuer in a nativity scene who isn't out to get us. Rather, he faces off on our behalf against the one who comes to steal and hits him in the face with a shovel. So turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 21. 1 John 4, uh, verses 7 through 21. Um, would you mind bringing the lights all the way up? Thank you. I can see my Bible now. Wonderful. Thank you. 1 John 4, uh, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, I want us to begin tonight by zooming in specifically on verse 18. And then from there, we'll zoom back out to the rest of the passage uh, to get a more full picture of God's love for us and what that means for how we are to live and to love others. So let's read verse 18 once more. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Right out the gate. Look at me go. Fear stems from a flawed view of God. Fear stems from a flawed view of God. Now, in preaching this passage, I want to be very careful that I don't rip this verse out of context. It's very easy to take a verse like this, 1 John 4.18, it's very easy to take a verse like this and preach it by itself without considering at all the verses that surround it. And if we do that, we can make this verse mean and say almost anything. We can make it say whatever we want. See, that's what happens with pillow verses like Philippians 4.13 and Jeremiah 29.11. Uh, If you don't know what I mean by the term pillow verse, I simply mean that if you walk into a Christian bookstore, these are the verses that you will find embroidered on pillows. You could also call them bumper sticker verses, or coffee mug verses, or Instagram verses, or paintings with white Jesus cheering you on verses. Sure you guys follow? Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is not about sports. It's not about weightlifting or anything else like that. It is about Paul learning to be content in Christ no matter what types of hardships he is enduring in his pursuit of being a preacher of the gospel. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is not about God having a painless plan for your life. It it was about God having a good plan for the Israelites, even though they were about to walk into 70 years of Babylonian slavery. It was his way of saying, trust me, things are about to look bad, but I have a plan for you. Now, we can take those verses know their context, learn their meaning, and then apply lessons from those into our lives. Certainly, we can take the lesson that Christ satisfies us no matter what, and that in Christ we are able to use any situation to glorify Him. By extension, we could play a sport with the right motivation, that, that our satisfaction won't be, found in Christ, won't be found in success, but rather in Christ. We could take Jeremiah 29, 11 and be assured that no matter what we are facing, God's plan is still good and perfect and pleasing, even if we can't make sense of it in the moment. So the point is, we have to have a context that goes to a verse, and we have to apply the verse according to its context, not in spite of its context. So, when we look at 1 John 4, 18, and we are given this promise that perfect love casts out fear, we have to consider in context how to apply that properly. Okay, so a, a misapplied use of this verse, perfect love cast out fear, would be to walk into a haunted house and as evil clowns are jumping out at you with chainsaws, you screaming over and over, ah, perfect love cast out fear, perfect love cast out fear, ah. Or, Jesus, it's a room full of snakes, perfect love cast out fear. I'm not sure why that turned into a southern woman. Um, felt right. Um, 
The point is, this is not meant to be a mantra to help you win fear factor, okay? In context, a very specific view of fear is implied. It tells us in the second part of this verse that fear has to do with punishment. He says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, If we take the context of the entire passage, John is giving us assurance of salvation. And he's giving us assurance that we have a God whose primary attribute is love. And he demonstrates his love by sacrificing himself for us. Now that doesn't mean that we can't take lessons from that and extrapolate them out to other types of fear. And as we go on uh, through this message, we'll see exactly how this plays out in other types of fear. But we have to start first at the primary context and the primary meaning, and then work our way out from there. So at the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to to consider the question of whether or not you believe you are living good enough. Whether God is pleased with your life. And hopefully all of us would admit that there are areas in our lives that need to improve, right? Hopefully all of us would say, well, I'm a sinner and I fall short every single day. And I know of specific areas where I need God to sanctify me. And I know that as time goes on, he's going to continue to reveal more and more things that I'm not even aware of now. And that's going to continue until the day I die. I'm not going to be perfect until I get to heaven. But for some of us, asking that question is going to poke a fear that resides in the back of our minds. A fear that often drives us from its place in the shadows. We're afraid that we will get to the pearly gates and be told, not good enough. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid that our actions are going to cause God to love us less. We're constantly concerned with doing good enough to make sure that we stay in God's good graces and that we're living in such a way that God will continue to love us more. If you don't feel that way in this moment right now as we speak, wait until you do something stupid. Wait until you fall into the same sin for a hundredth time. Wait until that moment where you make a foolish choice and guilt starts to assault you. Then you start asking, how long before God just gives up on me? Surely he can't Just love me as much as he did before. I've let him down again. I'm such a fool. I know the Bible says the gospel is true, but is it really true for me? Can God actually love a failure like me? We've bought into a culturally appropriated view of karma. If you do good things, 
good things will come your way. If you do bad things, bad things will come your way. And so we set out to do more good things than bad things. We set out to make sure that the good outweighs the bad. But we can't ever escape the fact that no one knows what the score actually is. We don't know if we've done more good or bad. And it leaves us nowhere but living in fear, running blindly, chasing an invisible finish line, not even knowing if we're even running in the right direction. But at the root of all that, what John tells us is a flawed view of God. Consider what type of God operates in the principles of karma. Is that a God who is a friend? Is that a God who is like a loving parent? Is the karmic God one who is filled with mercy and grace? Of course not. The karmic God cares only for the weight that is revealed on one side of the scale of justice. It is a God that stands ready to bang the gavel and throw down the hammer and declare you guilty unless you perform up to its standards. The karmic God is one with a lightning bolt at the ready waiting for you to appease its wrath. It is a God that fills you up with the fear of punishment. But is that the God of the Bible? Is that the God that we claim to worship? No. And the surrounding verses describe what God actually is. Look again at verses 8 through 10. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is love. It's not just something that he does. He personifies it. He is it. And even though there's not a single one of us that could ever live up to his perfect and holy standard, not a single one of us could ever tip the karmic scales in our favor, God sent his son to be the savior of the world who would be the one to take our punishment upon himself. Jesus is the evidence of God's perfect love. And that is why verse 9 tells us, this is God's love made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. My friends, we do not have a God who is out to get us. 
We have a God who is out to rescue us. In the movie, Home Alone, Kevin McAllister saw old man Marley carrying a shovel. And he didn't know nothing about him at all. That was terrible grammar. He didn't know anything about him at all. He assumed that old man Marley was out to do nothing but harm. But that's not actually who Marley was. In another scene later in the movie, Kevin has a conversation with Marley. This conversation takes place in a church. Marley sees Kevin sitting in a pew by himself and walks over. And Kevin is terrified. Marley asks if he can sit next to him. And Kevin reluctantly agrees. And with the sounds of O Holy Night being sung by a choir, Marley points out his granddaughter singing. And he asks Kevin, you live next to me, don't you? You know, you can say hello when you see me. You don't have to be afraid. There's a lot of things going around about me, but none of it is true. Later in the movie, Marley uses the weapon that Kevin is so afraid of, the shovel. But he uses it to knock out Harry and Marv and save Kevin's life. Listen, there's a lot that's going around about God. But none of it is true. He is not waiting to destroy us with his power. He's offered to use his power to save us. And he manifests his love by sending his son into the world to be our savior. And he is looking down at our terror-filled eyes and saying, you don't have to be afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. We just finished this series, Taste and See. And in that series, we talked at length about the goodness of God. That when we understand how good he is, when we understand that he is love, when we understand all that he has done for us and continues to do for us, we have no reason to fear. It is only when we see him as scary old man Marley that we are filled with fear. This is the whole reason why we celebrate Christmas. Because in coming to the earth, in the flesh, to be our Savior, God was proving just how good He is. With the birth of Jesus, God is demonstrating exactly how loving He is, and He's giving us cause for worship. Christmas reminds us that we need God, not ourselves. This is point number two. Self-affirmation will leave us out in the cold. Self-affirmation will leave us out in the cold. Now that we have established the primary context of this passage, now we can begin to build upon that and extrapolate it out further to other areas of our lives. Because... A flawed view of God 
will not only lead to fear of judgment, it will also lead to countless other fears as well. See, one of the greatest side effects of having a flawed view of God is that we will also have a flawed view of self. He is, after all, our creator, and we are made in his image. So, if our image of God is wrong, it is impossible to have an accurate view of ourselves. What are some of the ways that this can look? Well, if we don't view God as a perfectly loving creator with a perfect plan, it can be easy for us to assume that he made some mistakes in executing that plan. Perhaps even mistakes when he made us. It becomes very easy with this flawed view of God to have a flawed view of self and begin to self-loathe. If we don't view God as perfectly wise, it can be easy for us to question his plan. It then becomes very easy to be filled with fear about the events of life. It becomes very easy in this uh, mindset to become very insecure. If we don't view God as powerful and good, it then becomes easy for us to question whether or not he actually cares about what is going on in our lives. And when that's the reality that we're living in, who wouldn't be afraid of being alone? Who wouldn't be afraid of whether they are truly loved? With that view of God, we fall into fear of whether we're worthy of love, whether we're important enough to be cared about, and if we're always going to be alone. If we don't view God as being perfectly able, if we don't view Him as being one who is always by our side, then we will always fall into fear of whether we will be enough whether we have what it takes to face this life, and what will happen if I fail. Without a proper view of God, we become easy targets for every other type of fear. What, then, are we to do? Well, according to the world, you self-affirm. You are to convince yourself of your goodness and worthiness. Uh, Salvador Dali, the famous Spanish artist, once claimed, Every morning upon awakening, I experience a supreme pleasure, that of being Salvador Dali. And I ask myself, wonderstruck, what prodigious thing will he do today, this Salvador Dali? That kind of sounds like a (laughs) D-bag. But he's not unique, okay? Salvador Dali was doing something called the mirror technique before the mirror technique was ever a thing. What? Huh? Oh, yeah, it does sound like Zlatan, a soccer player. Um, He's using the mirror technique before he even knew what the mirror technique was. An author named Claude Bristol, in his book, The Magic of Believing, one of the important uh, seminal works of self-help, 
talks about the mirror technique, saying, Many great orators, preachers, actors, and statesmen have used the mirror technique. What is the mirror technique, you ask? Well, you stand in front of a mirror, you look yourself in the eye in the mirror, and you speak out loud what you want to be or do. Bristol says, By using the mirror, you are creating a picture of yourself. Your words, the sound of your voice, to which the immediate future is to bring to reality. By looking into the mirror, you will increase the mental vibrations by which the force and meaning of your words will quickly penetrate into people's subconscious minds. You can say things like, I am good enough. I believe in my abilities. I trust myself. I have all that it takes. I trust my gut. I follow my heart and my intuition. I am worthy. I have no limitations. Or, if you're Schmidt from New Girl, your mirror technique would be more like, look at you, dog. Look at you. You got this, son. You got this. All heart, all action, directive, movement. You got it. (laughs) And by doing this, it will magically come true. For best results, speak these affirmations in the morning and before you go to bed at night. Now listen. Words do have power. Okay? I believe that. I'm not trying to denounce that at all. Words absolutely have power. And speaking self-affirming words, starting the day with a positive outlook, can have an effect on you. It can. But it will be temporary. It won't be permanent. And it will not be strong enough. Think again about that scene from Home Alone that we started with. Kevin speaking to himself under the bed, self-affirming, using the mirror technique. This is ridiculous. Only a wimp hides under the bed, and I can't be a wimp. I'm the man of the house. And he confidently moves out and declares, I'm not afraid anymore. Until... And it didn't take long until the until came, until he faced something that his self-affirmations didn't properly prepare him for. Something he wasn't looking for. And that was scary old man Marley. And so suddenly all of the confidence that he had filled himself with washes away and he runs back inside screaming. Why? Here's the problem with self-affirmations. They're based on self. And self will never be enough. We need something that is perfect. Something unchanging. Something higher. Something complete. Upon which to build our hope. We need a rock to build our house upon. So that when the storm comes, we do not get washed away. A little bit earlier in uh, 1 John 4, we are given direction for how to build true confidence. 
Um, I forgot to put this on the screen, so if you're looking in your Bible, uh, this will be verses 1 through 6. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who, in you, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So what this does is it gives us a litmus test. Now it's talking about testing spirits and it's talking about prophets. And what this all boils down to basically is messages. There are messages. We can, we can substitute that word for wherever it says spirit or prophets. There are messages and we are to test each message. Each voice with a message we need to test. And the litmus test that we are given for whether or not we should believe a message is, does it affirm the true lordship of Jesus Christ? That is the test. With every message that comes, whether it's internal, a part of that internal dialogue that we're always having, or we're hearing this from a teacher, or we're hearing this from the media, or from any other source, any message that comes to us, the way that we test it is to ask, does this affirm in fullness the lordship of Jesus? It gives us a filter through which we can throw out the garbage and keep what is actual and true. And rather than giving us self-affirmations, rather than having to do this mirror technique where we're throwing all of this confidence at our reflection, we are actually given what message to give to ourselves. We're told what to speak to the mirror. We're told what to speak into our hearts. This is in verse 4 and verse 5. Little children, you are from God. You are from God. And you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak the world. They speak world. What is world? Self-affirmation. Salvador Dali, the soccer player, Zlatan, who when asked, what did you give your wife for her birthday? He responds, I didn't give her anything. She already has the greatest gift in the world that there is. She has Zlatan. (laughs) Salvador Dali, I have this incredible experience when I wake up every morning. I realize I'm Salvador Dali. 
What kind of awesome stuff is Salvador Dali going to do today? They speak the world, and the world listens to them. We speak the truth. You are from God. Your Savior is greater. He who is in you is greater than anything you will face. There is nothing that I can walk out the door and face that I cannot have supreme confidence in that my God is greater. So whether it's the wet bandits or old man Marley or something else, there's nothing that will come against me that is greater than he who is in me. The confidence that I have is not based on any goodness in me, any greatness or any skill or anything else. The confidence that I speak to myself is based on the eternal hope of the gospel. And if I only speak that which is from the world, it will not last. It might make me feel good for a few minutes, but it will fade as soon as I get a left hook. Self-affirmation only lasts so long. But what will last forever is the truth of the gospel. Only the truth of the gospel will cast out fear. Self-affirmation is just going to put a blanket over it. And we are given this tremendous gift at Christmas. Christmas morning with the birth of Christ, God was saying, I am giving you truth to speak to yourself and to the rest of the world. Point number three, when we are perfectly loved, we are set free to love others. When we are perfectly loved, we are set free to love others. See, we're not the only ones living in fear. The, the people sitting in this room or listening online, watching the video or listening to the podcast, we're not the only ones living in fear. Every single person in the world is living in some type of fear. So we're not the only ones that need this truth. We need this truth for ourselves. But somebody has got to be an ambassador so that that truth doesn't stop right here. We are the ones who are called to speak that truth and live that truth, not just to the mirror, but to the world. Look at verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. It is outward. Look at verses 11 through 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. You can't just look up at the sky and see God. But if we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. Verses 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Something interesting happens in this scene where Kevin has his first conversation with Marley. See, it begins with terror, okay? And then the terror subsides as he realizes that Marley isn't about to slay him in this church. And he begins to see that Marley's just a normal person. Marley begins to share about things that are going on in his life and, and how his own family has been broken up. He's there at the church watching his granddaughter sing in the choir. But the reason why he's there now and not later is because he and his son have had a falling out. They haven't spoken in years. And and Kevin tells him, you should call him. And then Marley is the one to express fear. Well, well, what what if he doesn't respond? Kevin says, aren't you a little old to be afraid? Try anyway. Once Kevin is over his fear, once he's thinking and speaking clearly, he tells the truth to Marley. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to love. When we have received the perfect love of God, we are then unleashed to be the perfect love to others. We cannot be the love of Christ. We cannot be the hands and the feet of Jesus unless we have first experienced that in fullness in ourselves. And then we are sent out saying, not only can we, we must. This is not an option. This is not a choice that we get to make. It's not like we just get to say, okay, I accept the perfect love of God. I'm good. No, we have to then take that and be conduits outside of here. Verse 21 makes it very clear. This commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. There there is no word in there that seems to suggest that this is an option. This is not a suggestion. This is not... You know, once God loves you, you have the option then to go out and love others. If, if you want. If not, that's cool. You know, just sit there and raise your hand, sing the songs, go to church, uh, and then go home and lock the door and don't speak to anyone. <laughs> that's not a freedom that we are given. If we are perfectly loved... Then we are set free and commanded to share that love with others. Because just as much as we need it, they need it. Every single Sunday, we end church with the words that are our mission statement. The mission starts after church. Thank you. That makes me happy. (laughs) The mission starts after church. And this is the mission. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Uh, Point number four, this is where we'll close. And and I want us to zero in on this specifically as we go out into the mission. Love will always point in God's direction. Love will always point in God's direction. Love is a word that's kind of tossed around a lot these days. 
uh, a word that has become uh, easy to redefine. A word that means so many different things to so many different people. In the English language especially, since we only have one word, love, we use it naturally in multiple contexts. I love my wife. I also love Notre Dame football. I also love bacon. Of course, we know that that word means different things in those different contexts. Allison's like, does it? Yes, it does. But the word love can also mean completely different things to completely different people. But what this passage tells us is that love, true love, is always going to point back to God. In this section in verses 1 through 6 where John gives us the litmus test for truth. Where he tells us, test the spirits, and this is how you know whether or not a message is true if that message points to the lordship of Jesus. If it doesn't, it's not true. If there is any message that contradicts the lordship of Christ, every spirit that does not confess Jesus, every message that does not confess Jesus, it says, is not from God. If it's not directly connected to who God is, it isn't true. Culture will tell us that treating every idea equally is love. Not just treating every idea equally. Culture tells us if you don't affirm every single idea well, then it's not love. It's not tolerant. But the Bible tells us that in order to truly love someone, it will always be in God's direction. Look at verses 14 and 15. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him And he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We have come to know. By this we know. We know with confidence God is love. Love is God. And so anything that does not affirm His Lordship, anything that does not affirm the truth of His Word, anything that doesn't line directly up to Him, is not of Him. If we are going to love others, it will always be in God's direction. Now that doesn't mean... A lot of the things that come to people's minds, okay? That doesn't mean that we go out and we bash people with truth. That doesn't mean that we take our Bibles and we treat them like hammers to hit everybody with. The, the old term Bible thumper, that's not what we're called to be. One of the greatest things about Christ one of the things that I look at Jesus and, and, and blows my mind. That dude figured out somehow how to perfectly balance truth 
and love. How to perfectly balance a life in which he perfectly loved others, yet did not compromise at all on truth. That he spoke the fullness of the revelation of God, and yet the worst people were the ones who wanted to be around him the most. He had a magnet about him that seemed to attract the people furthest from the truth of God's word. That is how we ought to live. That is what we are set free to do when we are perfectly loved. This Christmas, we celebrate the God who came to the earth to be born to take away our fear. That we may know beyond reasonable doubt that he holds us and our future in his loving hands, that we are secure in him, and that any spiritual enemy that comes against us, he will hit them with a shovel and say, come on, let's, let's get you home. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you that your love casts out fear. Thank you that we don't have to be afraid of judgment. We don't have to be afraid that you're out to get us. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to have a proper view of you, which will lead us to confidence. That on the day of judgment, we might confidently stand before your throne and say, I am washed by the blood of Jesus. God, I pray that if there are any here or listening or watching, who need to make a decision, who need to accept your love for the very first time, or to accept it in a, a way that they never have, or if there are ways that you're working in their hearts by your Spirit, God, I pray that tonight would be the time that they confidently make a decision based on your love. Lord, help us to accept your perfect love and then set us free to perfectly love others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, we'll play our closing song.